You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And before we get any further, I want to give my regards to all of our friends and family across Texas who are going through some hard times right now. And I hope the worst of this winter disaster is behind everyone soon. I'm excited about new Patreon people. Bill Peterman, Cynthia Samaki, and Paul Eric Backland. Thank you so much for your generous support. Uh, It takes a group effort to support any entertainment channel, and uh, I appreciate that you folks get that. Also, thank you, Bill, for the nice note. And Cynthia, I look forward to hearing about your upcoming radio interview. And Paul, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. I took a shot at it, buddy. And folks, if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling, please go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. So let's get to this week's guest, and I'm going to front load this a bit more than I usually do. Uh, So let's uh, start heading in that general direction. Chris Jenkins is the CEO of the Orian Society, and I made his acquaintance a number of years ago when Orian and the HerpMapper Project formed a relationship. And as a result of that ongoing collaboration, uh, Chris arranged for the HerpMapper team, and that's, that's Don Becker and Chris Smith and I, to visit South Georgia in January and tag along during some indigo snake surveys. And we brought our buddies Nick and Greg and Justin along, so it was a righteous carload of herpers. And we got out in the field and saw some awesome indigo snakes and other critters and helped with the data acquisition. And we really got a ground-level view of what the Orian Society is doing, um, not only to conserve indigo snakes and indigo snake habitat, but to also to restore these awesome animals in places where they used to be. Uh, you know, you don't want to keep all of your eggs in one basket, as they say. Now, these days, the Orion Society is working on other conservation projects as well for things like bog turtles and wood turtles and hellbenders. And, of course, at the core, these efforts depend on protecting and conserving habitat. And if you set aside and maintain habitat for charismatic megafauna like indigo snakes, uh, you also end up protecting other creatures like gopher tortoises and frogs and invertebrates and a whole bunch of plant species. And uh, So if you visit Orion's website, you'll see that their projects are, are really habitat-driven. They have things like the Longleaf Savannas Initiative, which indigos fall under, and or, or like the Great Northern Forest Initiative, which uh, concerns wood turtles and other animals. And, and speaking of the website, Orian has done a fantastic job of not only encapsulating what the organization is all about, but they also go deep into the work itself with what short video segments and uh, mini blogs from some of the Orian staffers like Kylie Briggs and Houston Chandler and Ben Staganga. And, and an extra shout out to Ben, who I got to know in Peru a few years ago. He just posted this awesome video about chicken turtles and 
since I'm all about chicken turtles at the moment. I enjoyed that very much. Thank you, Ben. Uh, so, folks, go check out the Orion site, and I have links in the show notes. Uh, it's absolutely worth your time. So let's get back to our guest. Um, so if running Orian is not enough work to keep Chris Jenkins busy, he also has a podcast called Snake Talk, which is uh, an extension of Orian and which I enjoy listening to, even though I'm still working my way through a lot of the episodes. And, and I was honored to be a guest on Snake Talk a few weeks back. I was talking to Chris about Hurt Mapper along with Don Becker. And turnabout is fair play, as they say. And Chris was kind enough to return the favor and have a chat with me. So let's hear it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. And on this episode of So Much Pingle, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you the CEO of the Orient Society, Chris Jenkins. Welcome to the show, Chris. Ah, thank you, Mike. Good to be here. Good to have you on. And uh, turnabout is fair play, as they say. <laughs> I was just a, a guest on, uh, along with uh, Don Becker. We, we were guests on your show, uh, premiered, what, last week, I guess? Uh, yep, came out last week on uh, Snake Talk, and it was a great episode. And I hope it, hope it turns a lot of people, uh, you know, towards using HurtMapper. Yeah, yeah, it was a HurtMapper uh, episode. And I shared it as far and wide as I could, so hopefully that's, there's some interest there. And I appreciate you having us on your show, and I appreciate you coming on my show. So uh, so I, I think I want to start off a little bit, uh, before we get started, I talk a little bit about your background, uh, what, what your, where you were educated, and how you came to be involved with the Orion Society. Yeah, so I was a uh, wildlife biology major as an undergraduate at the uh, University of Massachusetts. Um, I grew up in, in New England originally. And then I moved on to do a master's at also at the University of Massachusetts, uh, this time in, in wildlife conservation. And I was focused there on doing some research on uh, marbled salamanders and specifically oh. looking at how they how they move across landscapes if current kind of like buffer regulations around wetlands were sufficient enough to to you know maintain their populations those types of things and then I moved out west to do my my doctorate uh, and I did that in biology at Idaho State University in uh, Dr Chuck Peterson's lab and there we we were studying primarily well we were studying how there, uh, there was a big, broad-scale disturbance that was changing some of the deserts in the Great Basin and the Interior Columbia Basin, and we were studying how those landscape changes in the desert were ultimately impacting rattlesnake populations. Ah, uh -huh. fascinating. Was this prairie, prairie rattlesnakes? They, uh, well, you know, they're all part of the former uh, Western complex, but no, these were uh, Lutosis, the uh -huh. Great Great Basin. Rattlesnake, and I was studying uh, Lutosis uh, pretty close to Yellowstone National Park, kind of southwest of, of Yellowstone out in the Snake River Plain. And uh, there were prairie rattlesnakes not too far up in Yellowstone, for example, but then also prairie rattlesnakes up into uh, central Idaho. So you know, I've seen a fair number of prairies, but no, I was focused on uh, Great Basins. Okay, excellent. And uh, those, uh, those, those are some of the most beautiful rattlesnakes around. Yeah, no, I, I love them. I've actually, I'm 
looking across my desk here, I've got one kind of in the jar, uh, pickled, if you will. And uh, yeah, there, and you, you know, you might be able to see, I know your audience can't, but behind me on the wall, I've got some great basin rattlesnake artwork. They're, they're certainly uh, up there as, as, you know, potentially one of my favorite animals on the planet. Well, I can't wait. We're going to have to talk about rattlesnakes a little bit on this, on the show. Okay. Uh, but, but tell us uh, first how you got involved with, with Orient. And, and I want you to tell us a little bit about what or what the Orient Society is and what they do and that kind of thing, too. So if you can segue into that. Yeah, perfect. So, you know, I was as I mentioned, I was doing my my Ph.D. at Idaho State University and I was working out at a field site. I don't mind saying it because the public's not allowed to go out there. So it's not, I'm not giving away any, any sites, any snake sites, but um, it was out on a Department of Energy site called the Idaho National Laboratory. And so I was working out there on my doctoral work. And when I finished that, I ended up doing a postdoc, which very quickly turned into a job with a nonprofit called the Wildlife Conservation Society. And WCS is kind of best known for the Bronx Zoo. WCS runs all of the zoos and aquariums in the greater New York City area. And, And that's where the headquarters were. But Actually, fewer people realize that that WCS has conservation biologists all around the world. So anyways, I was working for WCS in what they called their greater Yellowstone ecosystem landscape, if you will. And I was there doing research on a whole variety of species, including snakes. And at the time, I was talking with some of the leadership in New York about creating um, a kind of a new position for myself, creating uh, basically a global snake program within WCS where, you know, ideally I would be running a program that had snake programs or projects going in South America and Africa and all the different places that WCS worked. So I was developing, you know, doing some strategic planning around how, how you might put together such a program and doing some fundraising with that. And we had a number of people who were starting to support the concept. And one of them in particular ended up, uh, you know, he was very involved with WCS as a philanthropist. And, you know, they had some uh, some form of falling out, meaning WCS and this, you know, and this philanthropist. And um, at the time, he was funding us to do eastern indigo snake conservation work in the southeast through what would be this bigger WCS program. And he wanted to create a new organization that he would primarily fund and I would create and be the, the, uh, the intellect behind, develop the strategies, implement the strategies, run the business day to day. And um, so we, we talked for a number of months and finally uh, came up with, you know, came up with, with an organization we were going to create. And that's how the Orian Society was born. And Orian, the, the word Orian is, is, you know, we often get questioned about that. And the first thing I'd say is, you know, it, it, it sounds like a, a really obscure or strange name for an organization, but we love it because um, you could think of it as almost like analogous to Audubon, right? You could tell a lot of people in the United States, you could say, when I say the word Audubon, what does it make you think of? And what would most people say, right? Bird. And right. so we're working towards, and, and in certain landscapes, certainly in the Southeast and, and building that in the Northeast, 
uh, you know, we're starting to get to the point where the word Orianne is kind of synonymous with, with reptiles and amphibians. And so that's that's kind of our goal. But Orianne is the name of this philanthropist's daughter. And and certainly the organization was inspired by her. She wanted to she wanted her father to do conservation work for Eastern Indigo Snakes. And so we we developed the organization in her name. Excellent. Excellent. And, you know, a lot of the people that, that listen to the show are are quite familiar with the Orient Society. And it's uh, I'm sure some of them uh, have, uh, support the, the, the society. I, I know I do. I usually uh, I just renew my membership. I try to do all my uh, philanthropical membership renewals in January so I can keep track of of that. And uh, I saw that. I saw that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> You're welcome. But uh, so this is a, a nonprofit conservation group, and you you get to run this from your home. Where where are you? So we are based. Uh, we have, well, so first of all, we are a very dispersed organization. We have staff members in different states around the country. We staff members, partners, contractors. We even have people like that in other countries at times. So, but we do have a headquarters, and it's in Georgia. Um, it's up in North Georgia, right? right kind of on the North Carolina border. Uh, the closest landmark that people would probably recognize is actually over in North Carolina, which is Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Be at the National Park fairly quickly. But we have a small headquarters there, and that's primarily because this is where I live. And, and in that headquarters, we have four staff members. But most of our staff members are dispersed, work from home, work in the landscapes that, you know, that they're working to protect. We also have other facilities, you know, we have a, uh, a preserve uh, system in South Georgia where some people live and, and uh, you know, certainly a lot of people work. And, uh, you know, we also have a, a breeding center uh, down in Florida that we own that we work with uh, Central Florida Zoo in partnership with them to, to run that. So so we're but we're pretty dispersed overall. I see. And uh, the primary or the initial project was indigo snakes correct and 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 tell us a little bit about that yeah so you know originally the organization was it was it was developed as like a family type of nonprofit meaning in the eyes of the IRS and that that basically means that we received our funding primarily from this one family and at that time you're right. We were a single species conservation organization focused on eastern indigo snakes. And at the time, our name was actually Project Orient. Not a lot yeah. of people remember that. But um, And then we made a, a transition. We worked with the family to begin a transition from uh, a, a family nonprofit was called a public charity or a or, or a public nonprofit. It'd be very similar to, to companies in the for-profit world where you have kind of private companies and you have public companies. And so we have become a public charity or a public nonprofit that's supported more broadly by all the members, people, people like you. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and at that time, when we started that transition, we changed the name of the organization to the Orient Society. We wanted to maintain the Orient piece because it's just so, you know, it's it's formative. It's it's the base of, of what we've done here. And it's unique. Uh, yeah, it's unique too. Yeah, and it honors the, the the desires and the and the 
the foresight of, of a young girl who wanted to save a snake. Um, sure. But we did shift the name to society, become more inclusive uh, or, or more broad. At the same time, we broadened our programs to include other species and other landscapes. So, so yeah, that, that transition, you know, really has been going on for a number of years now, but really kind of started, say, six, maybe more like seven years ago. Okay. And, and the goal was to conserve the habitat for the eastern indigo at the start, and things changed a little from there? Well, the, the goal was we really tried to develop a series of comprehensive programs for indigo snakes. So they're really broad and diverse. We, we still do that today, but with the, the programs we work on, we may come in and play one part of that comprehensive role. Whereas with indigo snakes, we look at, we start with whatever species or landscape that, that we're working in. And we look at the issues that that animal's facing. And then we develop a series of programs to try to address those, those important needs. So with indigo snakes, the way the programs were initially developed, we did have, we had, first of all, all of our programs have a strong science component. We, we have scientists on staff. I, mean, I am a scientist by training. Um, and we certainly try to do science-based conservation. But our original programs for indigo snakes were, yes, one, focused on land protection, both acquiring land, working with partners, working on conservation easements to conserve indigo snake habitats. Um, and then uh, a strong focus on habitat restoration and management, which means for indigo snakes, that really means a lot of prescribed fire as the primary tool. Um, we also focus on captive breeding and reintroduction for indigo snakes. And we do a number of other things from conservation planning to inventory and monitoring. So we try to develop this comprehensive program. And when we went through the transition to a public charity, what we did is we expanded our scope, meaning we started working on other animals in other places, whether it be other parts of the Southeast, other parts of the United States or other places internationally. And then again, even with the indigo snake, we then focused in on a couple components that we're heavily focused on instead of trying to implement all of these comprehensive components. So um, it was a it was a broadening of the organization to make the organization more attractive to the public uh, in terms of you know generating public support. I see, and uh, I mean indigo is sort of an, an, an interesting animal to contemplate in a conservation way because they require so much land they they have so they have big movements uh they forage and move around but they're also very dependent on gopher tortoises is that correct yeah so i mean yeah the first part there is is uh, definitely true they first of all they have the largest home ranges of, of any known snake any native snake excuse me in north america i mean obviously the pythons down in Florida. I just recorded a podcast on pythons, um, by the way. I just recorded that yesterday, but uh, on snake talk. But, uh, but anyways, you know, besides the invasive pythons, you know, they have the largest home range. And so indigo snakes are using, you know, thousands of acres for their annual home range, uh, whereas most snakes have a mu much smaller range. And, and you touched on the gopher tortoise piece. One thing that's, I don't know if I'd call it unique, but it's certainly really important to indigo snakes is that they need different types of habitats at different times of the year. And so you mentioned the gopher tortoises in the winter, 
indigo snakes, especially in the more northern parts of their range, really the northern, say, two-thirds of their range, the indigo snakes need to find a place that they can go underground to escape what to them are relatively cold temperatures. I mean, you got to remember, indigo snakes, the genus Drymarchon, this is a tropical animal. I mean, yes. most of the Drymarchon in the world, you know, live from extreme southern Texas all the way down to Argentina, and they flourish in places like the Amazon and, you know, rainforests of Central America. So I almost think of, when I think of the biogeography of, of Drymarchon in general, I almost think of eastern indigo snakes as the species that kind of got like stuck in the southeast and they can't get out and it's really cold. Mm. So my point being is that in the winter they need gopher tortoise burrows. They can go into those burrows and those burrows are relatively warm compared to the air temperatures, the surface temperature. But then in the summer and in the warmer months generally, they come out and those sand hills where the tortoises are, those are really hot, extreme environments. Um, and there's not a lot of food there either. So the indigo snakes then go down into more lowland, like flatwoods areas. They go down into swamps where temperatures are significantly cooler from the snake's perspective. And there's also, um, you know, an abundance of food, food that's similar to the indigo is moving to that area or is just associated with these wetlands. I see. And do they estimate in the really, really hot months of the summer? Do they do they use the burrows at all for estivation or is this strictly a winter thing? Yeah, no, they don't. Uh, you know, there are some frogs and other things that like do a true estivation. Some of the turtles, as I'm sure you're aware. So indigo snakes, as far as we know, do not do that. They're, you know, if you, if you look at the, we've done some studies on like the thermal environments snakes are experiencing. So not just what are air temperatures. This is, without getting into great detail, developing these thermal models that tell us the temperature a snake experiences. So taking into account radiation and conduction and convection and all these, these ways that heat's transferred. And these swamps in the southeast uh, in the summertime are so much cooler than, than these uplands. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, they can stay relatively cool and, and very active throughout the summer. We've also done some radio telemetry, and other people have as well. Um, so, you know, this is technology by which we can follow the snakes throughout the year and locate them. And, um, you know, the snakes uh, stay very active, uh, you know, throughout that summer season foraging. Although it is different than, you know, a lot of people say, if you're going down to the tropics or if you're in a place like Florida or the Southwest and you're looking for herbs, you do a lot of night cruising, you know, road cruising, say, right. or, or just hiking at night looking for things. Well, there are some species here in the southeast that, despite the, the nighttime in the summer is, is, is much better temperature, they're just kind of a, a diurnal or, or a species that's active during the daytime. And indigo snakes are like that for the most part. They're, they're primarily a daytime active uh, spe- species. At night, they're typically kind of like they're either in the tortoise burrows in the winter or in the summer, they're, they're usually uh, you know just kind of in a hole or coiled up in a log or right and so when you, you you mentioned the fact that you have some captive breeding facilities can you talk about what what you're doing with those and what the what that project is for, the goals of that project yeah certainly so re- captive breeding and reintroduction is one of the key 
conservation components for indigo snakes. So indigo snakes are, they are listed on the Federal Endangered Species Act. They're listed as threatened. And all species on the, you know, covered by the act have what's called a recovery plan. And so this is, you know, a roadmap or a recipe, if you will, by which if you follow it, then hopefully the species should recover and you should be able to take it off of the endangered species list, excuse me. And so, you know, we've, we've worked very closely with the Fish and Wildlife Service on developing the recovery plan for indigos. And in the western portion of the indigo snake's historic range, so we're talking basically like Suwannee River, Tallahassee area of Florida, west through the panhandle of Florida, through South Alabama, and through Southeast Mississippi, those are areas where the snake used to occur, but it um, has not for for you know, really decades. And and if there are snakes, I think the last snake found was in the nineteen in in Florida it was in the nineteen nineties. In Alabama, was you know I want to say I might have this wrong, but I want to say it was twenty or thirty years before that. In Mississippi, I don't even know. It's been quite a while. And so you have basically a third of the species range where they're gone or at least functionally gone. Maybe there's one or two snakes here or there on the landscape surviving, but they're basically gone. And so as part of the recovery plan, we worked with Fish and Wildlife Service to, to set it up where the snake needs to be recovered in, uh, I believe it's three landscapes within this, this panhandle or we'll call it the Gulf region. Um, they need to be restored in a few areas to come to be considered as part of the equation for being considered recovered. And so we've been reintroducing snakes back into the wild. We're now working at two sites, one in South Alabama, and that site's, you know, has been receiving captive bred snakes for, you know, over 10 years now. And then in the last I believe maybe four years ago, we added a second site in the panhandle of Florida. So, and, and those snakes that are being released there are being produced at this breeding center that you were referencing. So uh, my follow-up, or my, I guess my obvious question to follow that up is, is measuring success. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I figured you were going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so as many people know, or, or maybe don't know, snakes are one of the harder types of animals in the world to study. Um, they're, you know, uh, if people, you know, juvenile snakes, for example, are very hard to find in most cases for most species. Snake detectability, meaning you, if a snake is in an area and you go out to that area to look for it, detectability for most snakes or your ability to detect it in that area is usually pretty low. They're just hard animals to study. So it, it's it's not, determining success is not as cut and dry as maybe it might be, say, with like a pond breeding amphibian where they come back to breed and you go to this pond and you do some type of calling survey or egg mass surveys. You know, we have a large snake that covers a lot of ground. It's a top predator type of animal. We had multiple students studying them, meaning the snakes are released and we're doing rate of telemetry or mark recapture and looking at survival rates and other aspects. But but a lot of our success metrics are maybe a little more anecdotal, if you will, as opposed to quantitative. 
in that, you know, looking at things like, uh, you know, seeing relatively high survival rates from these studies, you know, uh, things such as, you know, the first grad student I had, I was working with out there, we put transmitters in the first snakes were released, he goes out the next day, this is, you know, I want to say eight, nine years ago, he goes out the next day to track down the snakes, he comes up on the first snake, and it's got a copper head halfway down his throat. So anecdotal, uh-huh. but we see, oh, one of these animals is eating in the wild. Um, and then it's, then in more recent years, we have found uh, gravid females that uh-huh. are in the wild. So we know that they're breeding. Um, last year, we found a, uh, a basically a neonate indigo snake. So an indigo that you know, two indigos that we had released must have bred, laid eggs, and then we found a snake that hatched. So they're somewhat anecdotal, but we do have some uh, initial signs uh, of success. That's awesome. I and I I know that finding a neonate indigo or even a juvenile indigo, much much like finding a, a neonate bushmaster, is is rare. You, you just don't see them. They're 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 not gallivanting around the countryside like dad and mom who are six feet or seven feet long and e- more, much more easily easy to spot. So, uh, so uh, the fact that you can find a neonate or and the fact that you're finding gravid females is that's pretty significant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good to hear. So, so I have to say that uh, got to see indigos because of the Orients. Society, uh, because I work with the Heart Mapper Project, and Heart Mapper Project is uh, has a partnership with Orian, some data sharing, and uh, so uh, we, you, you guys, kindly invited us to come down and, and see what the Indigo Project was all about. We got to go out one day and help find some, and I think we found about thirty feet of indigo that day. That's <laughs> a good day, <laughs> as I like to tell it. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, that was an amazing experience. And, of course, we learned a lot about uh, indigos from uh, just that one day in the field. And, of course, hanging around with uh, uh, guys like Dirk Stevenson and Steven Spear and Dylan Kelly. And I know I'm leaving a guy out. I can't think of his name off the top of my head. But uh, it was just kind of great to to sort of um, get into that that whole um, the whole conservation work that you're doing with that and sort of see it firsthand. and. I I also know that Orient has something called Indigo Days. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we recognize that you know field herping is a growing and important form of recreation. So basically, uh, you know, the concept of people who recreate by going out and looking for reptiles and amphibians, and then you have tools that are perfectly designed to help that, such as Herp Mapper. And uh, you know, we get a lot of requests for people you know, wanting to come out and see an indigo snake. And so we've developed multiple citizen science projects by which people can come out with our scientists and go out in the field and look for animals. And we've set them up like this for a number of reasons. One of all, it makes our lives easier because our, our scientists are out doing work in the field. And if they're bringing out different volunteers twice a week, that's a, it has a negative impact on our work. It's a lot of, it requires planning, requires all these things. So we've, We've kind of combined these into experiences like Indigo Days, as you mentioned, is a citizen science event by which people come together. Typically, we set it up, might be in a campground where we're based, for example, and we'll have, you know, we provide 
you know, dinners, whether it be pizzas or barbecue, and and we set it up and and we in an organized fashion go out and do indigo snake surveys. And so a large number of people can participate at once. Our, a lot of our science citizen science activities right now, because they're very intensive, lots of people are on hold till with this pandemic. But our plan is to resume doing things such as Indigo Days and, and another one we have called Places You've Never Hurt. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. 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 I hope I hope those those come back. And uh, Indigo Days, just it's I'll, like you say, so many folks that are into field herping, uh, an indigo is, you know, that's a top tier animal. They don't they don't want to bring one home, but they <laughs> sure want to see one. And uh, and I, I understand that desire. And I, I know that you understand that as well. Uh, and I think it's great that people, you know, I, I think, you know, you can contribute to Orient Society, help out with what's going on. Sign up and get involved with things like Indigo Days or, or places you've never heard, which is another thing that we should probably talk about a little bit. But it allows the general public to support the organization, but also just sort of be a part of it, too. I mean, what's cooler than helping with a survey? I mean, if you've never done that before, and it's exciting. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, when we came down and Don and Chris and Justin and, and uh, Greg came down with me and we all went out in the field and helped you guys survey. And I, we were actually able to find a couple new snakes that, that weren't, uh, weren't, you know, part of your survey, you know, your surveyed animals. So, uh, so it was kind of fun. And, and that, uh, that's one of those contagious things that, uh, people who are just sort of getting into field herping, that that's, uh, that's something that really gets people excited to, yeah, it's one thing to see it, but it's another thing to help people like helping. Yeah, I mean, those are valuable contributions, the types of observations you were just talking about that, that you helped with. And that's a real important point relative to even indigo days. I mean, yes, there is an entertainment factor there and a recreation factor in that we're providing the opportunity for people to go out and see these and handle them. Because the other thing, these are federally listed species. Technically, you're not supposed to handle them, but obviously we're permitted to do this through our work. But a real important point is that these data that are collected at events like this are, you know, used. I mean, it, the data are recorded, they're you know, input into places like HerpMapper, they go into like state and federal databases and help us as we're revising the recovery plan and, and working on strategies to, to recover the species. So, so yeah, I agree. It's a, um, that's a really important component of field herping is using the data for, you know, to help the species. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, places you've never herped? Can you just talk about a little bit about that? Yeah, so places you never herped is similar, but it's as opposed to being species focused, it is uh, place based or place focused. And so we pick a location that is of interest to us for whatever reason that might be. Sometimes it's in partnership with somebody. Maybe there's a a new piece of public land that the state has acquired and it's just coming online or it's it's a particularly rare uh, site that we want to know more information about. And we do the same type of thing, an organized field herping event where all of the data that, you know, where we bring out these group of people and all the data that are collected go into these databases and are used for management and conservation. So it's, but it's not just focused on indigos. They're kind of like these bio blitz, like herp bio blitz, where we just ah. have everybody out 
looking for different things. And some people may be real focused on amphibians and others may be real focused on turtles, whatever it might be based on their interests. And we have, you know, some friendly competitions like who can find the most individuals, the highest number of species, those types of things. Nice. And uh, again, for kids and well, just anybody who's sort of getting into field herping or just biology in general, these are opportunities to, uh, number one, contribute and help. Number two, uh, hang around with, you know, folks that are also interested in doing those sorts of things. So you, you get to, you know, make some friends and, you know, get a different, different perspective on how this works, how conservation biology works. So, and I, I guess, you know, now, of course, number three is you're having a good time. There's just so many upsides to this that, uh, uh, I think it's a pretty cool idea, and, and uh, it's it's not a common thing across conservation biology, really. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, we love it. It's been great for us. Gathered a lot of information, good outreach to members, and, and uh, it just there's a it's it's like a win 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 from our perspective. So, and also now you're doing some other work, as you mentioned, you're doing some work with turtles. Uh, we will talk talk a bit about that as well. Well, first of all, we end up now these days doing quite a bit of work with turtles because, uh, as as many people may know, I mean, turtles as a group are the most endangered group of animals on the planet. We're now at over 60% of, of turtle species in the world are classified as endangered, according to the IUCN Red List criteria. And so... I mean, it's it's really a crisis, the, the decline of turtles. And so we end up working quite a bit uh, on turtles. Uh, here in the southeast, we've we've done work with bog turtles, alligator snapping turtles. We do really quite a bit of work with both gopher tortoises and spotted turtles. And then our program in the northeast, uh, we have a, a program up north called Great Northern Forests. And this would be in places like Maine, northern New Vermont, New Hampshire, that is exclusively focused on freshwater turtles, kind of the suite of rare turtles up there. So those would be things such as spotted turtles, landings turtles, fog turtles, wood turtles. Wood turtles are a huge focus of ours up there. Um, and then we even have uh, some international work. We're starting to partner with, um, I helped uh, create a new conservation organization called the Indian Ocean Tortoise Alliance. Ooh. And I serve on the board of that. And we work primarily in the Seychelles. And the, and the goal is to get the Aldabra tortoise um, reestablished um, back throughout the uh, Seychelles archipelago. Oh, nice. Nice. Oh, I don't know anything about that. Interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to look in more into this. So. Yeah, I mean, it's literally an organization that is launching as we speak. You can, okay. there are, there is information. You can find social media, find us on Instagram, find us, but, um, you know, on Facebook and other places. And there's a website now, but it is in the process of being developed. And Orianne is, is playing a critical role in helping to develop that organization and helping with the leadership of that organization. And, and you know, we're, you know, it's, it's you know, almost like two organizations that, you know, we have some overlap and work together best way to describe it excellent excellent well that also brings to mind something and maybe you can speak to this but i know some of the folks that are involved uh, with the project like like dirk stevenson and and steven spear and so y- you've you've brought in some some folks established biologists but you also bring in grad students and 
you, you know, it's a good place for people to learn some conservation, turtle conservation or snake conservation. And they, they come and uh, do some work for you guys and then they go somewhere else. So you've got the, kind of a little laboratory there for, for producing uh, some conservation people. Yeah, I mean, we, we do hire um, different levels of people. I'd also throw out there, you know, we're a business. You know, we, we're, uh, you know, you can be an accountant work for the Orient Society. Ah, you can be yeah. a website developer and work for the Orient Society. So Very I mean we, we have those components as well. We certainly hire scientists and have graduate students. Uh, we hire a lot of seasonal positions. These are people early on in their careers, say they're a wildlife biologist or they're like a habitat management professional. Every year we're hiring anywhere from like five to ten positions like this. It might be a four month position doing turtle surveys or know, a six-month position doing prescribed fire. Um, and, and we do have an eye towards career development when we do that, meaning I don't necessarily like to hire the the turtle tech, someone as a turtle technician who's, you know, spending their career moving around from three-month job to three-month job. You know, we're trying to get people who come in, they're working for three months, and then they're going to go work for somebody else for three months, then they're going to go to grad school, then they're going to, you know, so... We're trying to help people work up that ladder and try to improve conservation, improve career development. Cool. Very good. Very good. And I guess you're also doing some work with Bushmasters. Yes, we have historically, and I still have an interest in them and, and talking about maybe doing a trip. I think my first post-COVID trip, you know, a, a significant trip, uh, if it's it may be Seychelles related to the giant tortoises, but uh, very soon I will be going back to Central America looking for bushmasters. But so I helped, I founded, well, let me back up. So there's a large global scale nonprofit called the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Um, and it is a globally recognized nonprofit. And even more so, you know, if you, if you go to most other countries in the world outside of the U.S., it's one of the biggest names of conservation here. It just isn't as big, but it certainly functions. Anyway, so the IUCN is the acronym, and they have these species specialist groups. So you might have a rhinoceros specialist group, and that brings together rhinoceros conservation biologists from all over the world. They could have a primate specialist group. So I created. Uh, the Viper Specialist Group, and I chaired that for you know about a decade. I just uh, just recently rolled out of that uh, position and handed it on to some very capable leaders. And as part of that, uh, we were doing quite a bit of Bushmaster work, uh, doing surveys, trying to find one of the rarer Bushmaster species, the black-headed Bushmaster. And we were doing a lot of that work in partnership uh, with a great organization called uh, OSA Conservation, and they're, they're worth everybody checking out. So, But the Bushmasters are, are one of my favorite animals on the planet. You talk about indigo snakes being top tier. Bushmasters, to me, it, uh, you know, indigos are there as well. But Bushmasters, just one of the most amazing species. She's so odd, yeah. you know, egg-laying for, for being a New World viper. Just, uh, yeah, fascinating animal. Yeah, and one of my great regrets for this year is I I'm not going to have a shot at them this year. Uh, have you Have you gone down to find them in the past? 
Uh, yeah, when we the Peru trips that I'm involved with, and I, I work as a I don't get paid for it, but I work as a tour guide uh, in northeastern Peru. Take groups down there a couple times a year, and uh, with uh, Matt Cage, and we work for uh, on, it's uh, Project Amazonas, it's a nonprofit, but we take harpers down there, birders and photographers down there twice a year, and. We've learned how to dial in the Bushmasters. I think I've seen, se- I think I'm on seven or eight, and I think Matt is on eight or nine. Like he's a, he's a couple ahead of me. Wow. Yeah, since 2013. And so usually every trip we've been, almost every trip we've been getting a Bushmaster, at least one Bushmaster. In January of 2020, we got uh, two. Nice. Yeah. So, or uh, no, 2019 we got two, but... Uh, I've done quite a bit of work in Peru, but mostly in the mountains. So you're saying northeast, that's up, is it called Iquitos? Is that up in yeah. that region? Yeah. yeah, we're in the Iquitos region. And uh, so we've been very fortunate to see quite a few Bushmasters. And uh, so they're right, like you, they're right up there with me. Uh, for me, they're one of my favorite organisms on the planet. And, yeah. and so I'm kind of disappointed that, uh, so every trip, you know, the goal is to, you know, the, we have people that pay money to come down there. That's one of the prime reasons people get on our tours is they want to see a Bushmaster. You know, that's, that's top tier snake. So we've been very successful at that. And uh, so it's just kind of disappointing that that is not going to happen uh, until yeah. next January. So yeah, looks like I'm going to be gone for most of January down there. So yeah, next year. So anyway, uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I would love to, Someday go to Central America or you know Costa Rica or whatever and see some of the other species of bushmasters. But uh, for right now, I'm gonna I'll be sticking with the the South American form muta. Yeah, well, you're 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 much more likely to find them. I've been on multiple expeditions. There have been a number of people looking for black-headed bushmasters for quite some time. People who live in the region, and I mean, you know, there's only really ever been a handful of them that that have been. You know, found so we did end up uh, putting radio transmitters on two of them that we found, and, and right collected some of the first movement data for for black-headed bushmasters. I think it's actually the only movement data ever recorded for black-headed bushmasters. So, and then oh wow, wow! So not as easy as muta. No, and and I don't picture muta as easy either. So I mean, the oh. black-headed bushmasters like finding like winning the lottery. Or something. Yes. Yeah. Well, I know Matt had made uh, a lot of trips down there before he found his first one. We found our, our first Bushmaster together, but uh, we've kind of figured out they, you know, they they'll come out on the trail uh, not early at night, but later at night they'll come out and then they'll sit on the edge of, of game trails or which are, which we use. You know, we have established trails through our preserves, and they they'll come out and, and so it's all trail time. Uh, and it's conditions too, right? They don't, they don't seem to come out much when the weather's dry. They like precipitation. So if had a good rainy spell or lots of rain during the day or that week, uh, chances are better of, of finding them, but you, you gotta get out there and put the time in on the trails. And so far that seems to be working. And I think probably finding, after finding a couple, you sort of get dialed in on, you, you, you know, it's just easier to spot them. And of course we also have some uh, locals that work for us down there who are very good at spotting them uh you know see just a little little bit of a of the skin you know under a log yeah. or something that kind of thing they're very good at it so yeah we might need to uh change the subject because 
I'm getting very nostalgic. I'm not joking about that. I, I mean, I people who know me, and for those who don't know me, I am a mountain person. I've always lived in mountains my whole life. It's not, you know, I chose to live near Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I'm a mountain person. But the one other general place I love on the planet, uh, more so than anywhere, would be the, you know, kind of New World or Latin American rainforest. Just, I just love them. So anyway, it's I don't know if it's nostalgia or sadness or what, but I want to go too. So <laughs> we, uh, we, we should change this up. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I understand completely. I think uh, this maybe this is a good time to to change course a little bit, and uh, I want to talk about your your podcast. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, which is called Snake Talk, and mm-hmm. I think it debuted last summer. Is that right? Yeah, we've. Well, that's a good question. Yeah, but we're, you know, we're maybe approaching 20 episodes. So, yeah, I mean, it's relatively new within the last uh, six months or so we launched it. And uh, so, yeah, relatively new podcast, but it's been we've been getting some good. Uh, we just had great guests and, you know, just been getting a pretty good response, you know, getting a lot of people uh, starting to follow it and, and a lot of interest. So it's it's been fun. I, I enjoy it. I I have not listened to every episode, and that's just a time thing. It's not an interest thing, but I have listened to probably half of them, Good. and uh, I really enjoy it. And I really enjoy some of the guests that you've had on here. But before I get to that, I was just wondering what uh, what what motivated you to start a, a podcast. And I ask as one podcaster to another. <laughs> <laughs> well, so first thing I'll tell you is that I am a complete podcast junkie. Like my ah. my evenings, I do a lot of long drives and so i'm listening to podcasts then but most evenings you know i don't watch i don't sit around and watch tv you know i i am a cigar smoker as you know but so most evenings you will find me on the porch of my house smoking a cigar and listening to a podcast and so i listen to podcasts daily and i have who knows 20 30 podcasts that i listen to every episode and and in really mainly in different kind of arenas of my life, other interests that I have. And, and that's what hit me about it. I was like, I love this, this form of media. It, it's so directed. I can listen to topics that are exactly what I want to listen to. But I have this huge segment of my life, which is herpetology. And, and you know, my personal interest is even a little more snake focused. I have this huge segment of my life. That's also my career that, there's really not much content out. I started thinking about that, and I and then I started thinking about the concept that with snakes, just through my career, you know, being a, a scientist and working at universities and you know chairing big groups through IUCN and just everything I'd done through my career, it got me really thinking that if if I created a podcast about snakes, that I could really attract you know, the, some of the top people in the world and provide content that would be really informative. So there was that piece. I, I was like, I could do that. I could run a podcast on snakes and, and get top people in the world. And so there was that. And then the other thing that, that kind of has been building over the years but came together with that was the concept that, you know, I've been working on snake conservation for again, decades. And your tool, you have a toolbox just like anything. And, and we have a toolbox for snake conservation. Again, that toolbox may be buying a piece of land. It might be restoring a wetland. It might be 
breeding an animal and putting offspring out, right? Uh, but the other one thing that I've consistently noticed, and I say this over and over, that, that snakes are one of, if not the most misunderstood, maligned, and persecuted groups of animals on the planet. And But at the same time, people are not indifferent about snakes. It's not like, let's say you you have a piece of woods you, you walk through near your house and you see gray squirrels there quite a bit. You know, the first gray squirrel you see on your afternoon walk, you might kind of look at it and be like, oh, look at that. He's got an acorn. And before you know it, you're just ignoring gray squirrels, right? I mean, you're, <laughs> so, but people don't do that with snakes. People don't just walk by and be like, oh, there's a garter snake. Oh, there's a rattlesnake. And just, you know, I mean, every, it, 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 it brings up some intense emotion, whether that is fear, whether that is excitement, whether that is admiration, whether that is hate. It, it does something very intense to everyone. And so the concept of developing this podcast, well, oh, step back. The concept that I had been working on in my head for a long time was that we have this conservation toolbox. But one of the most important things for a species that we can, like snakes, that are so maligned, that are so persecuted, but yet people are so interested in because they well up these intense emotions. One of the greatest things we can do for the conservation of snakes is to increase people's knowledge. And so I developed Snake Talk based on my general interest in podcasts to the general lack of podcasts in, you know, let's just say herpetology. Um, and then three, it's a there's a real need to get people knowledge about snakes to hopefully end um, in the end or ultimately change, you know, persecution rates. And so all of those things come together. And I just was like, I need to develop a snake podcast. And that's that's how Snake Talk came together. Excellent. I just did it because I wanted to get rich. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> uh, I, as we talk here, and you're looking at my basement. Uh, <laughs> well, that that's awesome, and, and I never thought of it. Okay, that's yeah, uh, that's it's public outreach, right? That's part of the toolbox, and it's, this is just another channel, or actually a a much more contemporary channel for doing that, right? Yeah, exactly. And and you'll notice from our, you know, our episodes are, are we specifically design a diversity of episodes are tied together by, you know, providing knowledge on snakes. But, you know, we have field herping related episodes. We have episodes related to other fields. Like we have one on fly fishing and, and snakes, kind of that intersection. We're going to be doing others like that, like gardening and snakes. And, okay. you know, we have real science oriented ones. We've had ones on religion and snakes. We've had, so, but the idea is, Certainly, I hope to hit the people who, like yourself, that obviously are very interested in snakes. But the goal is to bring in some other people and over time, build a broad following, even if that following only picks out, you know, certain episodes that they're interested in. But but it's to educate. I don't want to just preach to the to the choir. I mean, I hope the choir is there and I hope they're learning interesting things and they're they're entertained and. And becoming great ambassadors, but a big part of Snake Talk is to 
you know, we're trying to creatively get beyond that. And yeah, so that's that's part of it. Well, I think you're hitting on all the cylinders there. I was struck of the ones I've listened to, and and they've all been good. But I one of the ones I, I first want to talk about was an episode you did with Kim Kim M Ross. Morose, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Kim is a snake wrangler for the Walking Dead television <laughs> show, and and that you know I I have friends who do snake removal and snake education and things like that, and I got to tell you that one uh, that one just caught me. I I actually was sitting out on my deck with a cigar listening to that one, <laughs> <laughs> just so you know, but. It was just so captivating. I just kept, you know, I just had to drop everything else that was going on and just listen to it all the way through. It's this very interesting show about, uh, number one, of course, it's about snakes and it's about, she does educational work and she's educating the cast and the crew and, and yeah. other people in the community. And, and, and so she's doing all, you know, all the good work that, that people do, but it's all wrapped up in this crazy television show. <laughs> and, and, uh, I, I just thought that was excellent. And if you can't hook people with that show, there's something wrong. <laughs> you know, I just thought that was great. Yeah. So again, we're a show like that. So first of all, I met Kim. I was given a presentation on timber rattlesnakes uh, years ago now, um, kind of outside of Atlanta. And uh, she was there. That's how I met Kim. And, and you just will not meet a more energy filled, uh, kind of dynamic person in the snake world. She's really um, a lot of respect for her. She's really a great ambassador for snakes in so many ways. And she has, uh, in the time since I've known her, she has kind of built this very interesting career where she, her job, she works for the TV show, The Walking Dead. And she is on set and is basically removing snakes to to not just keep the you know the actors and the and the you know crew safe, but to keep the snakes safe. Because then she puts all the snakes back. Even if they're gonna be back there in three or four days shooting again, then she goes in and removes the snakes, holds them back. And as you mentioned, she just gets to do a great deal of education and and outreach associated with that and and she has some great stories so yeah i hope everybody gets on and listens to her episode snake talk and then again this is all part of our strategy with snake talk you know just by having an episode that brings in such a popular television show like the walking dead we it increases our audience and it hopefully brings a broader audience to snakes and and takes plays on that those real intense emotions people have about snakes even if they're fears um and and hopefully is going to provide them more information that could ultimately have a better result for the snakes themselves yeah i have to say that the undead are much more frightful than than (laughs) snakes i would certainly agree with that (laughs) yeah Well, that's that's very cool, and uh, I can't wait till I get through these. But uh, I'm I'm slowly catching up. Your 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 out my uh, listening is is just a little bit ahead of your output. Uh, one of the other ones I really liked was one of the first ones you did was with Doctor Stephen Beaupre. Is that how you say it? 
Yeah, Stephen Lupre. Yeah. yeah, and uh, you guys talked about uh, rattlesnake ecology. And uh, I thought that one was uh, particularly interesting to me because, uh, number one, uh, I mean, you take it you guys are pretty much buddies, but uh, you guys got into rattlesnakes on a very deep level, uh, which a lot of me and a lot of other folks are the same way. I mean, that, uh, the subject of rattlesnakes is something, there's just no bottom to that <laughs> or no top, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Uh, and so I was particularly struck by that episode uh and it just again you know this is how we're different from other people we think about rattlesnakes in the middle of the day (laughs) you be shopping in the store and and we'll we'll be worrying over some some element of of rattlesnake behavior uh exactly it it just kind of captivates you and it just doesn't let go i mean I, I I know you understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, there's a few things there. You know, the first thing I'd say is, yeah, so I've known uh, Dr. Bupre for many years. Uh, and, and you know, again, that was part of my strategy for developing Snake Talk. Is, you know, I know I've worked in these arenas for so long. I know many of the, you know, the, the top academic people in various fields. And so um, one of the types of episodes that we do on Snake Talk has to do with that, where we will pick an animal, a species, say, or a group of animals, and and we'll just talk to the world expert, and we'll go into incredible depth on the animal biology and ecology. So so that was what that episode was about. And if you're interested in timber rattlesnakes and really getting in-depth into their biology, that's a a good one. Uh, And uh, so... Well, I think, think, you know, the thing, timber rattlesnakes... Perhaps other rattlesnakes get far more attention. Uh, uh, although, I, to me, they're one of my favorites. But you know, they're they're not. I want to. I don't want to say they're the sexy rattlesnake. You know, because there's other rattlesnakes that seem to capture people's attention far more that for all kinds of reasons, right? Sidewinders because of the locomotion, and, you know, Mojaves because of their venom load and things like that. So they're. But uh, it's as far as you the the basic utilitarian rattlesnake. There's not much better than a timber. As far as you know, occupying habitats and things like that. Yeah, I mean timber rattlesnakes. You know, we we talked about Great Basin rattlesnakes. Timber rattlesnakes. Those two are probably my favorite rattlesnakes. They're the two that I've worked on the most. And timber rattlesnakes are just amazing. First of all, you know, you know there was a book that came out on it, but but I do like to say they're America's snake. You know, they're the venomous snake that overlaps with the majority of our population here in the United States. And not only that, but but in many places, you know, if somebody sees a rattlesnake in the wild, that's the only one that they're going to see in most parts of the United States. I mean, there might be, you know, they might be in a place where there are massasaugas and one wetland or something. But but in general, the, the timber rattlesnake is is America's snake. It's the one that overlaps with the people most as a huge range. Um, and then you know, I just love them. They're great symbols. I mean, everybody's familiar with like the Gadsden flag and, and, you know, how they were used as symbols during, you know, the American Revolution times. And to me, they're just fascinating in that they've survived and they still occur in large parts of Eastern North America, despite the fact that we just have such huge uh, population densities. And then the last thing I'd say about them that make them so special to me 
is that relative to that that last piece with you know surviving these high human densities is that there is a remaining symbol of wildness or wilderness in the east you know we've killed the wolves we've killed the grizzly bears we've killed the mountain lions for the most part but rattlesnakes remain and timber rattlesnakes are that that symbol of wildness in much of the east that's i hadn't thought of that before but yeah that you're right um to, uh, as far as charismatic animals yeah i was thinking back about this uh, our talk coming up and i Remembered some. Uh, I read a paper. Uh, I don't know a number of years ago that was came out in the eighties back in, in, in Copia, and it's Reinert as the main author, Howard Reinert, and uh, I can't remember who else was on there, but uh, it was basically a, a small paper on rattlesnake behavior. And uh, there's a great illustration in this paper. Uh, it concerns itself with the ambush predator mode that timber rattlesnakes are in, and on. You get the classic timber rattlesnake coiled up next to a log, and it's got its head sitting on the log. And so it has this, this paper has this great diagram that shows the overlapping sensory fields that the snake is employing, right? Because it's it's obviously got its visual field, which is this you know circle that's it's not three sixty, but it's three maybe three hundred degrees, and then it has this smaller field of uh, infrared detection. Uh, and then it has its chemosensory detection. And then it also, because it's resting its chin on the log, it has, it can pick up vibrations. And so this animal is just, it's just hitting on all the cylinders for prey detection. Mm-hmm. And that paper just kind of, kind of knocked me over a little bit. And I, I really hadn't thought of the snake in, in that way and, and, at that depth before. And, and now I can't stop thinking about it. So. <laughs> Rattlesnakes, they're amazing. I mean, all, all life is amazing, but rattlesnakes are amazing. And, you know, that gets to, you know, what I say at the end of every Snake Talk episode. You know, I tell the audience that snakes are animals, too. And it's it sounds weird to say, but, but many people put them as this separate thing. And I think it's important for the general public to know that snakes have a biology. They do things like you think of an elk. In the Rocky Mountains migrating. You know, rattlesnakes do the same thing. The other thing I think your example from that paper um, really highlights is the concept that, and it hits back to what we're trying to do with snake talk, is that most people don't experience that. So, and you know, I give, you know, a lot of, uh, of kind of outreach events with snakes, right? And rattlesnakes in particular. And I hear everything about them, as I'm sure you have, where people are like, mm-hmm. oh, that snake looks angry. And, uh, you know, oftentimes when people say that the snake's just coiled up in the side of its cage. And I'm actually like, well, no, it doesn't. It actually looks pretty mellow at the moment. <laughs> you know, but you hear, you know, you'll hear people be like, well, I had those snakes are mean. You know, I came across one and and I hit it with a shovel and it was trying to strike me. And that thing was angry. I'm like, well, you hit me with a shovel and, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to get pretty angry too. You know? Yeah. And so my point being that, that I would encourage all of your listeners and, and certainly try to do this at snake talk and snake talk is to, you know, again, snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild. And so when you see one, even if you're a field herper, like if the first thing you do when you see a rattlesnake is run over and grab it with a set of tongs and throw it into the open and 
you're not going to see what that snake's doing. Like, right. it'd be equivalent to like if you're going out to watch elk in Yellowstone and you know, you're going to tranquilize everyone you saw. I mean, you're just not going to be able to watch them. So you might still end up, depending on the regulations in your state, you, you might end up handling this snake or doing whatever. But take a minute if you see a snake in the wild and just observe it. That's what's, you know, I mean, it may have, have already detected you, but you'll see what snakes do in the wild and observe them like you would observe other types of wildlife before you go to get that picture do these other things. I just think that's an incredible message. And, you know, your your diagram of a foraging snake, very few people see that because they don't stop and take a moment to look at an animal and observe it. With snakes, people don't want to grab them because they love them. They want to kill them. They, they are immediately responding. Take a minute, observe, and enjoy it. It's a privilege. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, uh, we, we've talked about this concept a couple of times on the show, on the show through some of our various guests. And I, I, I want to keep talking about that concept of just hang back, see what it's doing, see where it's going to go. You know, you don't need to rush up and stick a camera in front of its face right away. Oftentimes, I think, you know, for me, the, the first, I don't know how many timber rattlesnake experiences I had. I'm just, I'll just single out timbers, but so many of them. I saw when they were in transit, habitat transit, right? They're either coming out of hibernation or they're going to hibernation or, or something like that. But when you start seeing them out in the woods where they're at, coiled up, uh, I mean, I'll, I still can see these when I close my eyes. The, the times I've seen timbers coiled up at the base of a tree, like a hickory tree, you know, and their heads are facing the tree and they're, they're just waiting for something to either come around the tree or down the tree. And I can still see those in my mind's eye. And and that's that's the kind of experience I would wish for anybody interested in these snakes, because that's the that's the animal doing its thing. It's it's uh it's not an accidental encounter where the snake is on the move or crossing the road in front of you. You you went to where they are and you got to see them do just behaving naturally. And uh, you know, I in terms of field herping. You know, I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, I wouldn't call myself the classic field herper in that, you know, I, I don't spend all of my recreation time out looking for herps. Um, I, I would kind of call myself like a snake or maybe even like a rattlesnake field herper. Like I, I will actively when I'm traveling, say, go out of my way, do a day hike looking for a rattlesnake. But I'm not just, uh, you know, going out looking for anything. It's a little more specific. Than me. But my point here being relative to, to what you're saying is that, you know, more often than not now, when I'm out looking for snakes, I don't even bring a snake hook. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I have so many pictures of rattlesnakes with different species. I mean, there, don't get me wrong. There are cases where I have a snake hook. Maybe we're trying to catch the animals for study, or maybe it's the first time I've ever seen a particular species and I do want to get a good photograph. But in general, you know, more often than not these days, if I'm out looking for snakes, or if I'm even doing research or monitoring on snakes, if I'm not required to catch them, I don't even, I don't even bring a snake hook. I'm just out looking for snakes, you know? So, I mean, I don't bring a, I don't bring a, a you know, a snare trap or, a, a, you know, when I'm going to look for birds. So, you know, I don't have to catch <laughs> every snake I see, just like, you know, birders don't have to catch every bird they see. So. What a mess that would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I don't use the hook much at all. They make great monopods when you need one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I, I, there's an adrenaline rush holding a snake. Don't get me wrong in handling snakes. Oh, yeah. I have plenty of snakes in captivity. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at two timber rattlesnakes, you know, about five feet from me in a cage, and I've got a six foot diamondback right here to heal them. You know, I mean, I can handle all the snakes I want. You know, the other tip I would give field herpers for watching in particular rattlesnakes because they can often be more visible is bring a pair of binoculars just ah. like a bird would. and you know if you're at say like uh, an overwintering like a hibernacular and the snakes they are emerging bring the binoculars just like you would if you were elk hunting or looking for birds like you know be scanning the rocks uh, ahead and and using binoculars you're going to see more natural behavior. You can watch that rattlesnake from further away. If it's in a foraging position, if it's moving along, say, a rocky talus slope, whatever it is. But I think binoculars um, are, are really good tools. I use them a lot at uh, rattlesnake gestation sites because, uh-huh. you know, you oftentimes you'll see the snakes shuttling in and or out. And, and, you know, especially if they have, you know, the neonates have been born. You can just see a lot of activity, animals moving around, and it's great to just use a pair of binoculars and watch that from a distance, and, and you'll see, you'll you'll just see more natural activity. The animals aren't behaving in a defensive way, trying to save themselves from you. They're they're doing what they would do. So that's that's a, a tip I like to give people: use binoculars when you're looking for rattlesnakes. I I like that, and I have done that. I, I get it when if it's your first rattlesnake, it's it's a pretty exciting thing, and you want to you want to you want to see it rattle or hear yeah, it rattle. Yeah. You know, you want it to to coil up and and do the the thing that they do. But you know, over time, you, you don't need to do that every time, and that that kind of it doesn't lose maybe it doesn't lose its luster. But then you start thinking about well, do I really need to excite this animal uh, in this unnatural way? Oh, uh, maybe I could just stay back and take a picture of it. Uh, and I, I think maybe that's a, that's maybe a natural progression. I like to think. But. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I'm not saying people shouldn't handle them. Um, well, I mean, rattlesnake, just, we don't need to get into that, but there are, they are venomous, obviously. And sure. you know, there are times people want to handle them or photograph them, but, but, you know, the last thing I'll leave your listeners with. This. So if you, uh, every rattlesnake you see in the wild, wherever you go in the country, if you immediately catch that snake, Every rattlesnake you see, every single one, is exhibiting one behavior. It's a very defensive behavior. And versus if you really try to observe them in nature and you find some in foraging postures like you were talking about, or you find some that are moving and you observe how they move, you find some that are feeding, you know, swallowing some, you know, males fighting, whatever it might be. But if if you go and experience, observe the animals, you're going to have a much richer experience because you're going to see all of these things. And again, at times, there are times to catch them and photograph them and get them very upset. But all the listeners should know when you do that, you're watching one behavior. And it's a behavior that they probably really rarely ever display in the wild. So you're watching a very unnatural behavior. So I would encourage everybody. You know, again, if you're going to Yellowstone and you want to see a lot of elk, you know, if, if you saw thousands of elk, but every single elk was drinking water, like you'd be like, huh, you know, like, oh, man, I'd love to see an elk run. I'd love to see two elk <laughs> fight. Right. Think about snakes like that, too. And they're animals, too. Yeah. And they do do other things. 
Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. So I want to I'll put stuff in the show notes, but uh, I think it's pretty easy for folks to find uh, the Orient Society uh, online. And I, I hope that uh, I know some of my uh, my listening audience support support the project, and I hope that more will. And uh, Snake Talk, the podcast, uh, I believe, is available on pretty much every podcast platform. You should be able to find it by doing a search for Snake Talk. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they can also find it on our website. So I would encourage everybody to to go check out, go to www.orianne.org and you'll go to the Orient Society's website. All the Snake Talk episodes are there. Um, you can also find us on all of typical social media. Excellent. Excellent. And so you've, you've got, uh, I'll just ask you some professional uh, uh, professional questions here about, about, do you, uh, typically, do you have a lot of guests line up? Do you work hard at, at scheduling months ahead or how, how does that work for you? Yeah. So snake talk is, uh, it airs every two weeks, two weeks. Okay. Once every two weeks, we may move that up to every week, but you know, I also, I run the Orient society and, you know, right. And, you know, so I run a business and all aspects of that. So, Right now, we're doing every two weeks. And in terms of uh, guests, yeah, I typically, it kind of goes in spurts, meaning like I will, uh, I will kind of not record for two or three weeks. And then all of a sudden, I will line up like five or six guests. And within a week, I'll do five or six, record five or six episodes, and then we'll let them out every two weeks. And then I kind of, you know, going a little bit of a lull. So, for example, we are just coming to the end of one of these recording lulls, and next week, I believe it is, I have five podcasts that I'm recording for school. Holy cow! So, okay, yeah, I tried it. I'd, I'd like it if I could do two or three a week. It's like you say, sometimes there's dry weeks when there's nothing going on. But I envy you your two week schedule. This, this <laughs> one one per week schedule is. It's tough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we researched it a little bit, like into podcasts, and you know, for a podcast that's you know as long as Snake Talk, I you know I don't think I mentioned it, but they're usually an hour to an hour and a half max, say typically an hour and fifteen minutes. You know, every two weeks is is about a good frequency for that. I mean, those obviously vary. You have people like Joe Rogan who you know puts out multiple three hour podcasts a week too. So. Yeah, but that's all that joe does <laughs> it's true true <laughs> and i and i and i sense he is he is making a fair amount of money on his podcast so maybe we'll get there <laughs> i'm i'm i might have picked the wrong horse for that i don't know uh, <laughs> but uh we're on the same horse <laughs> yeah. yeah and i i i don't want to end up selling mushroom extra extracts and uh timeshares and things mm -hmm. on my podcast so uh, so perhaps exactly. it's just as well, but, uh, okay. Well, I was just kind of curious because, uh, you know, it's sort of a professional curiosity from one podcaster to another. And, uh, but I will say in the, in the six plus months that we've uh, been on the air, I have never not had two months worth of podcasts recorded. I'm like, I'm never right behind it. We're like, I don't have an episode. I have to record one to get one out. No. My plan is to always stay that way, to have at least two months might be excessive, but to 
always have, say, a month's worth of podcasts recorded, you know, so that just because, you know, I might end up like you just said, you're gone in January to Peru, like for a month. And so I do those types of things frequently as well. And so I like to ha- just be ahead, you know, ahead of it, out ahead of it. And uh, I've been successful in doing that so far. And that's my plan, again, to keep one to two months um, of recordings ahead of ahead of schedule. Good. So. Good. Well, you're uh, I've got I like to stay three or four, have three or four ready in the can, so to speak, just just because, well, you know, I, I, I do want to travel again someday. <laughs> someday yeah so i don't want to have to worry about trying to pack and then put out a podcast or something and and if i if i miss a week i miss a week but uh i do try to keep ahead of ahead of the game so that uh i go outside and do something else (laughs) there you go there you go (laughs) well chris thanks again for coming on the show i really appreciate it. it's good to talk to you again good to see you again and uh hopefully i'll run into you somewhere uh in the future down the road somewhere that's great. The pleasure has uh, has been all mine. So I look forward all to it. All right. Very good. That's it for episode 34. A big thank you to my guest, Chris Jenkins, for coming on the show. And Chris, I am taking your advice and I'm going to tote my binoculars along anytime I'm in rattlesnake country. And folks, see the show notes for links to the Orient Society. We'll see what they're up to. And hey, I want to say that I am a proud financial contributor to Orient, and I hope that you consider that option as well. Also, there's a link to Snake Talk, which you can also search for on your favorite podcast platform. Patreon people, thanks again to Bill and Cynthia and Paul Eric and to everyone else for your generous support. Now, before I go, I want to remind you that you can find all of the recorded episodes and the show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and other cool herpsters who hang out there. And, of course, you can contact me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take really good care of yourselves and, and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>